the reading of the scriptures from Jude, the reading verses 14 to 16. So uh, I invite your uh, reverent attention uh, that we might hear the word of God with fear and trembling. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, certainly one of the uh, more terrifying concepts of all of Scripture is uh, the end-time uh, judgment. Uh, and Jude, uh, this morning, will speak to us about what awaits the false teachers uh, and all who follow after them. Uh, namely, they will all come to a catastrophic ruin. Uh, I'm going to do something else, and that is append uh, the end-time judgments that uh, believers face. Uh, certainly, uh, it is not spoken of uh, in terms of proportionality of what awaits uh, the lost, but nonetheless, it's a concept found in Scripture. Uh, but with respecting the judgment that all believers face, uh, what awaits us is uh, that God will, in the end time judgment, the final judgment, vindicate His people. Uh, so false teachers and all of their followers will go to eternal ruin and the church will uh, go to great vindication. Uh, but nonetheless, when you think of judgment, it should have a purifying effect upon all of us, purify our souls uh, on occasion to enforce a measure of self-examination uh, because that's the nature of judgment, because God will examine us in the end. Uh, this uh, text, of course, is a prophecy of judgment upon false teachers. Uh, that is the reality of uh, verses 14 and 15. And then Jude will make an application uh, to illustrate uh, the danger that false teachers pose within the church, verse 16. Uh, so we begin by looking at uh, the judgment of uh, the false that will end in catastrophic loss and ruin. Uh, they will be examined, uh, Jude tells us, and taken in judgment for their actions and speech. Uh, Jude, interestingly enough, uh, it's not the first time he's done this, but he uh, is going to cite a prophecy from a, a non-canonical uh, pseudepigraphal work that was found at uh, Qumran uh, affirming a future judgment upon uh, the ungodly. Uh, contextually, it's very important that we understand that uh, this dealing for us here in Jude is uh, that false teachers will not win and that God will hold them to uh, account. The accountability of the judgment of God. Uh, uh, the prophecy here is perhaps chosen by Jude and made in terms of this particular verse uh, canonical because of the certainty of judgment. Uh, the citation is also, interestingly enough, uh, an allusion 
to Genesis chapter 5 and the mention of Enoch. He's quoting from the book of Enoch, uh, but uh, we have a mention of this godly man, Enoch. Who is Enoch? Well, allusion to Genesis chapter 5. Now turn with me, if you would, in your Old Testaments, uh, because I think the uh, allusion points out a very critical uh, element of the truth uh, of the times in which we live. Uh, reading Genesis chapter 5 and verses 21 to 24. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. And he was not. For God took him. Uh, he was translated into the presence of God without death. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 5, affirms that that's the exact nature of the transla translation, uh, namely uh, that uh, he did not experience uh, death, uh, that God took him because of his godly life. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, reads that his testimony pleased God. A remarkable reference uh, for us that we live in such an ungodly age, but uh, Enoch did as well, uh, but he pleased God. He lived a life that pleased God for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. He stayed the course. He remained faithful. Uh, contextually, uh, I think the reason that Enoch alludes to uh, Genesis 5 is the phrase that he walked with God because the false teachers claim to walk with God, uh, but it is an entirely false claim. And they will experience all of the ravages, not just of temporal death, but eternal death. Uh, but it is a remarkable reminder to us in terms of the church to walk with God, uh, and that God will reward us with life everlasting. Uh, the content of the book of Enoch uh, in this verse that's made canonical is that the Lord will come with myriads of angels. Uh, this too is an Old Testament allusion, uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 33 uh, and uh, verse 2. Uh, the context is a, a theophany of God, an appearance of God on Mount Sinai upon the death of Moses. I'm simply going to read the text, Deuteronomy 33, uh, in verse 2. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. So the coming of a great angelic host when God comes in judgment, myriads of angels, thousands upon thousands, and uh, the greater fulfillment of he is here, uh, as Jude alludes to Deuteronomy 33. Uh, in my own mind, I think it's a theological use of the Old Testament, uh, because in Jude, it is the coming of Jesus, therefore equating Jesus with the God of the Old Testament. The theophany of God uh, upon the death of Moses. Uh, it's interesting, if you, if you look at the text, uh, because uh, Jude uh, uses 
uh, uh, the past tense in reference to the future coming of Christ, uh, indicating the absolute certainty of the event. Uh, a technical uh, uh, word for this uh, in Hebrew, the prophetic uh, perfect, uh, in Greek, perhaps a proleptic heiress, but again, all that's inconsequential. The, the point is, even in the English Bible, this future event is spoken of in the past tense uh, because Jude holds that the event of the future is so certain to occur that he uses the past tense as if it has already occurred. A reminder that judgment upon the false teachers and all of their followers is certain. It will occur, and nothing can change it. Uh, the purpose of the coming is found for us in verse 15. Uh, he comes, of course. Jesus will come to execute judgment. Uh, verse 15, uh, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all of their ungodly uh, deeds, uh, which they have done in an ungodly way. Uh, it's interesting, the book of Enoch uh, reads that he comes uh, to destroy. Uh, Jude uses the word convict. Uh, but certainly when Jesus comes to convict, he will uh, follow his conviction with destruction, eternal destruction, uh, destruction that lasts uh, world without end. Uh, some in the Christian church hold to annihilationism, that the, uh, that the lost are simply annihilated, uh, I think Jude uh, contends otherwise, as does uh, the rest of the Scripture. Uh, but it is an interesting illustration that the concept of future judgment is so terrifying that even some Christian commentators cannot deal with that reality. They just affirm that uh, the lost are annihilated. Uh, again, I would confess otherwise. Uh, but the application is to false teachers with their followers for two reasons, uh, action and speech. Uh, it's interesting in uh, verse 15, the word all or every is used four times in one verse. That uh, means that none will escape. Uh, and there are three words from the word group ungodly. There's a noun, a verb, and an adjective. So that Jude is stacking parallel descriptions indicating that their actions in totality have absolutely no regard for God whatsoever. Uh, and it uses a very interesting word uh, uh, that they have done in an ungodly way, but I would translate it that all that they have done has no regard for God at all. Uh, and uses a, a Greek word here that's the alpha privative attached to the word for worship. In other words, all that they do has no worship of God whatsoever has no, absolutely no devotion for God. That the reason that you and I gather uh, as Christian people is to worship and to devote ourselves uh, in great affection to God because of who He is. But they have none of that. None of that whatsoever. It's the point of false teaching. It claims to be true. It claims to worship God. It claims to have affection for God. But Jude vacates their false affection and devotion because it's ungodly. Uh, that's their actions. Because of their actions, uh, Jesus will judge them, destroy them, 
and then he turns upon speech. Uh, in my own mind, that's really the, the, the more critical point is their speech acts. That's why they're false teachers, that they have gained a foothold in the Christian church and they bring uh, falsehood. Uh, their actions are dangerous enough, but their teaching is wildly dangerous uh, because it's infectious and it's meant to destroy. Uh, so we move from actions to speech, the latter part of verse 15. And all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, the, the word harsh things or hard things uh, is not in the sense that what they say is difficult to understand. Uh, it is that their, their words will harden you against God. And that's the point of false teaching. It has a way of perverting your heart so that you turn against God. And that's exactly what the antinomians or the libertines are attempting to do. Uh, to get you to think in your own minds that uh, it's permissive to commit immorality. Uh, but again, if you buy into that, it hardens you against the one true God. Uh, and the, uh, the charge is explicit. Uh, they speak against God. Against Him. We have a way sometimes of thinking that as Christians, we, we of course are to be loving, tolerant, kind, and gracious. Uh, but when it comes to speech acts, uh, we must uh, be other uh, because they speak against God. Uh, they incite rebellion in their teaching. So it's something that cannot be permitted uh, and cannot uh, be tolerated uh, in the assembly of God's people. Uh, their speech act is elaborated for us uh, uh, in a more fuller way in verse 16. That they are grumblers and complainers against God. Uh, these are parallel descriptions, by the way, of uh, Israel in the wilderness. As a reminder of what? How many, how many made it out of the wilderness into the promised land? Out of an entire generation? Only two. Uh, it's a reminder to be very careful, uh, certainly as a Christian people, by way of application. Uh, I, I run across Christian people all the time who get mad at God. Uh, how come this is happening to me? Uh, why is it you don't smile upon me anymore? I, mean, I understand those emotions I have of myself, uh, but we are uh, enjoined to be careful to complain against the God who is benevolent and kind to us. Uh, but it was not so with the first generation that came out of Egypt. Uh, they are discontent and they are dissatisfied with Him. And so, of that entire generation, almost all were destroyed, save, save two. Uh, I think part of the reality here is uh, that they make their own speech uh, and they follow their own desires. Uh, notice that phrase because it's quite interesting. Uh, following their own lusts. It's a terrifying reference even to Christians in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, seeking their own interests rather than the interests of God. Uh, it is a, a doorway uh, to a dangerous path. Uh, that you and I are called upon to seek the interests of God at the expense of ourselves. 
uh, even to our own harm and hurt, uh, to follow the great example of our Savior, uh, to put him above everything. Uh, uh, their speech act, interestingly enough, in verse, verse 16, the New American Standard reads, they speak, but it is literally their mouth speaks. It's a literal uh, Greek text, and it's interesting that the mouth is in the singular. Meaning in my own mind that uh, uh, they are of one accord in speaking against God to seek the ruin of God's people. Uh, the word uh, uh, they speak arrogantly, uh, uh, the old uh, meaning of this word is, is that of excessive size, meaning that they are puffed up in incredible pride. Uh, and then, literally, they behold the face as an idiom, New Testament for flattery, and they do it for profit. Uh, it means that they are chasing or are partial to the wealthy and perhaps well-connected. Well uh, something of a warning for every church. Uh, be very careful about being partial. They tell people what they want to hear. An interesting text in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 9 of the teachers of Israel in the days of that prophet, it reads that they were partial in their instruction. Showing partiality is a, is a grave disservice. Uh, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6, God shows no partiality. Uh, he does not give a pass to the wealthy or the well-connected or those in high or low office. Uh, we all stand below him and under him. Uh, we should be very careful about being partial in instruction. Think about it in this way, that great phrase, the initial verses of the book of Jude, uh, when he speaks to us to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, the great temptation of the preacher is to leave out the difficult things. I mean, why preach on predestination? Makes people mad. <laughs> uh, why preach on the fact that uh, uh, in our theology, our will, because our will is fallen, is under bondage? Uh, people don't want to hear that. Uh, I don't, I'm not so sure they want to hear about judgment. Uh, but nonetheless, it's part of the corpus of the Scriptures, and we are bound to proclaim the whole counsel of God. The words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders. It's not left to us to pick and choose. The scriptures are not a cafeteria. And uh, the elders are to teach of the whole counsel. Uh, pass on the baton that the apostles, the prophets, have given to us. Uh, it's very interesting when you, when you isolate uh, this speech act of the false teachers uh, is that you eventually in scriptures uh, come upon a, an astounding truth and that is that false teachers weaponize speech. Uh, they turn speech into weapons to destroy. Uh, if uh, spent a number of years uh, in the army carrying weapons, uh, imagine coming into the pulpit with uh, 
couple of nine millimeter pistols, an AR-15, maybe a harness with uh, some grenades hanging upon it, probably would shock you. Particularly if I got to waving the pistols around. Uh, but that's what false teachers do. They weaponize language to do what? To destroy, to ruin, to kill. Let's look at a, a couple of verses that speak to the weaponization of language. Uh, Psalm 57, uh, in verse 4. Uh, again, I mean, I understand as Christians we're to be tolerant, we're to be loving, we're to be forgiving. Uh, but when it comes to false teachers, we need to be beware, uh, to be sure. Uh, Psalm 57, uh, in verse 4. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. And these are weapons of warfare. They're meant to harm physically. Uh, but the greater point of false teachers is that they come, they weaponize language to harm spiritually and to destroy the soul. Another verse, again, among many, uh, Psalm 64, verse 3. Uh, Who have sharpened their tongue like a sword and aimed their bitter speech as an arrow. It's like in reality they pick up an AR-15 and shoot at the heart of God's people to destroy the soul. Uh, nevertheless, God will beat them, and in the end, he will destroy them. Uh, this, this concept of uh, future judgment uh, everywhere in the scriptures. Turn to a couple of illustrations. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, parable of the sower, that as you know is found in uh, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Jesus is teaching in parables. And a man sows good seed in his field, and an enemy comes at night and sows tares. Again, remember the context of Jude, false teachers. Because the point of this parable is they're going to sow tares as an agent of the devil. And uh, the landowner is awakened by his servants, and he says, they ask him, again, obvious question, can we go out into the field and uh, pull up the tares, pull up the weeds? that have been sown by an enemy. In the parable, uh, verses 29 and 30, uh, Jesus in the parable says, No less while you are gathering up the tares, you root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. In the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn." concept of uh, judgment upon both, but uh, the tares are destroyed, the wheat are gathered. Uh, as you know, in the parables, Jesus explains the parables to his disciples. He doesn't to the crowds, but he does to his disciples. Verse 37 to 43. Uh, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons and daughters of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. An enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. 
the Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire in that place, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who has ears, let him hear. Notice the phrase in verse 41, all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. That's the theology of the libertines, the false teachers, who proclaim that there are acts of immorality that are permissive in the life of the church. Permitted for partaking, if you will, of the Lord's table. Jesus closes his explanation of the parable with a very stark phrase. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, it is uh, a reminder that uh, ears are sensory receptors that can become hardened by false teaching. And therefore, if you confront it, you better get away from it fast because of its incredible danger. Because of the judgment, uh, the end of the age will affect the final separation, the true and false. So, again, I understand we're to be tolerant, kind, gracious, forgiving. Uh, but I also understand that false teaching is an incredible uh, act uh, that the Scriptures radically condemn. There's something of this separation, I think, even in a more profound sense of... Uh, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 24, uh, which uh, speaks to uh, the second coming of Christ. And, uh, and what will happen the second coming? Well, the end time judgment uh, upon all. Uh, there's two different outcomes. Uh, Matthew 24, uh, in the 40th verse. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. If you marry that with the parable of the sower, that the uh, angels at the end of the age will go forth and gather the lost, snatch them away to eternal judgment, and leave the righteous to enjoy eternal life. Two men in the field, two farmers, two ranchers. Again, agrarian culture. I mean, we could say two plumbers, two carpenters, two welders, two businessmen. One will be taken, one will be left. And those taken are taken in judgment. Same thing with the ladies, verse 41. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. The angels will go and effect the radical separation. The lost will be taken away. Imagine what a terrifying what an absolutely terrifying event that must be. Particularly upon people who think they're safe. Snatched away. Everlasting judgment. It is a purifying notion, and I think that's a greater application of the text. Uh, reminder of the Gospel. Uh, if, if you're not a Christian... Uh, the angels will know who you are and where you are. You cannot hide. I love a beautiful expression of the gospel. I think one of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Of all those whose names are written in the book, 
will be rescued. I mean, I understand it's a figure of speech. God doesn't have to write a book of the elect. He knows. But for us, it helps us understand the majesty of the book of redemption, uh, that the names of the people of God are there, and the angels know their names, and they will pass them by. All the rest will be taken by the forces of the angels. Thousands upon thousands coming. Terrifying upon those who are outside of Christ. If you're not a Christian, that's your end. I don't share it to scare you, but simply it's the reality of what the Bible says awaits you. Your only hope is to flee to the Savior and to sue for peace and believe upon Him and to plead His everlasting mercy, His grace, because He is a gracious and merciful Savior. Well, the, uh, the judgment of uh, the false teachers and all of their followers, of course, will eventuate in uh, everlasting ruin. What about the judgment of the saved? Now, our judgment eventuates in vindication. Uh, same event, judgment, but two different outcomes. Uh, let's uh, look at this text. and As I read these verses, I, I, I do remind you that should have something of a purifying effect to stir our hearts uh, to service uh, for our great God. Uh, Romans, a uh, couple of texts. Uh, it's not spoken of a great deal in the New Testament, but we would be remiss if we simply passed it by. Uh, Romans chapter 14, in uh, verse 10. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We skip down to uh, verse 12. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. What about you? It kind of terrifies me. Giving account uh, for thoughts, words, and deeds. Uh, perhaps a, a more uh, fuller text uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Uh, so how do we, uh, how do we confront uh, this reality of uh, uh, Christians uh, facing the judgment of God? First, of course, uh, is uh, the fact of, of our justification. Uh, I'm not backing away from the reality that we will give an account, but neither am I backing away from the reality that as uh, Christian people, uh, we are justified uh, by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We are declared not guilty uh, based upon the merits of Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So we go to stand before God in the judgment seat of Christ uh, with the righteousness of Christ. Uh, by the way, that frames the gospel all its own. If we go in any other way, uh, we will be taken away in judgment. 
because we are saved by the very righteousness of Christ imputed to us. It's hope of our salvation. Uh, there's something of the beauty of this, of our standing before God in the judgment seat of Christ in the book of Jude. Uh, I don't know if you recall a couple of weeks ago uh, when we uh, began our study of uh, the book of Jude. We obviously began verse 1. Let's, let's turn back to Jude verse 1 and think about who we are before God. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, notice to those who are the called, the efficacious calling of God where he gathers his own. All whose names are written in the book, they're going to be rescued. And God calls us efficaciously. Uh, and we come uh, because of the power of his call. Notice again, beloved in God the Father. Profound text. That God loves us. In God the Father, the love of God, the eternal love of God, the immutability of the love of God. A love that stands before us for all time. Never changing, running us to ground. God loves us, and we are beloved in God the Father, so that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, beloved of God the Father, called by his powerful invitation to come, so that we come. And then finally, just beautiful text, kept for Jesus Christ. Well, if we're kept for Jesus Christ, we cannot be taken away in judgment. The truth be known, scriptures call us to keep him. But the reality is, is that he keeps us. Because if he didn't keep us, none of us would keep him. So we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ in the love of God the Father kept for Jesus. Secondly, when you return and go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, in the context gives to us some very revealing words of how we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, notice chapter 4 and verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Meaning that the new creation has begun in our hearts. In the power of God, He's renewing us day by day. The new creation breaking out first and foremost in our souls. But it's begun. And so we stand apart as the new creation of God. And as part of the new creation, we will not be taken away in judgment. Uh, because the new creation is the end state, finally, of uh, His gracious work in uh, recovering His people, in glorifying them, uh, and of course, in glorifying uh, uh, His creation. Reminder that, uh, to use the words of uh, John the Apostle in his first epistle, perfect love casts out fear. It should purify us. But nonetheless, the love of God purifies us as well. Uh, look again at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 3 and 5. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked... So we go before the judgment seat of Christ, but we, we go clothed, do we not? And we will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not to want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
Now he who has prepared for us this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. So we go to the judgment seat of Christ, justified. Uh, we go beloved, we go kept, uh, we go as part of the new creation, uh, and we are clothed and so stand before God. Uh, and we go with something else, do we not? Did you pick up the final member of the Trinity, verse 5? We go with the Spirit as our pledge. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. We are given as a pledge the Spirit of God uh, that He will rescue us, come for us, glorify us. We have a down payment from God Himself that what He started, He'll finish. And so again, we go with perfect love, casting out all fear. It's a reminder the incredible difference. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, uh, but uh, those who are outside of the Savior will face catastrophic ruin. All who are in the Savior, Savior will be vindicated. Uh, and this, I think, is the, the point of standing before the judgment seat of Christ because it speaks to our vindication before the lost in that uh, our works uh, that we have done, our evidence uh, and confidence of the work of God within us. Uh, repairing to the parable of the sower, if you recall, there's only one good ground that bears fruit. Mark chapter 4, verse 20. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Uh, but the point of the, the parables that we, we produce fruit for the glory of God for the interests of Jesus Christ, uh, uh, that God manifests His uh, uh, presence in our lives. Now, one of my favorite texts, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, that we've been created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has long before ordained that we should walk in them. Uh, you and I, know a measure of the theology of uh, the book of James, do we not? Faith without works is dead. Uh, works follow faith. Uh, you and I know that uh, works do not save us. God saves us. But as evidence of His presence in our lives, we produce good works or fruitfulness for the glory of Christ. Uh, again, they're not salvific. We're saved only by the work of Christ as our substitute. Uh, but they vindicate us before the world that we follow God. And God shows to the world uh, the difference between the lost and the saved. Uh, Again, another great text referencing duty and grace. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation, fear and trembling. Do good works for the glory of God. Uh, use the gifts that He has given you to advance the faith, to equip the saints for the work of the service. Work out. Well, how can you work out? Uh, verse 13 because it is God who has worked within you, but the will and the work of His good pleasure. Everything that we do is the sovereign good pleasure of God. Even our works are the product of His working within us. 
the grace of God, the mercy of God. Uh, but the point, I think, is uh, the aspect of vindication. He's vindicating us before the world, taken away in judgment because their works were against God, had no regard for God, when our works were exactly the opposite. James chapter 2, verse, verse 18. James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. Evidence of true faith. Evidence of the work of God. Uh, perhaps the most clarifying verse in my own mind of this reality. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from all their labors. Notice the phrase. For their deeds follow with them. Our deeds don't save us, but they vindicate us before the world that God's favor was upon us, that we stood with him in truth, to build up the church rather than to tear it down. To give manifestation and evidence of his work within us. Duty and grace colliding that God will use to vindicate us before uh, the lost, to show that we were different, that we followed him, that we kept his word, that we were faithful and loyal. And when we die in the Lord, we will rest from our labors and our deeds will follow us. Blessed are all uh, who are so rewarded. So in our text this morning, uh, all are examined with different outcomes. The false will be found out, and they will fail and go to eternal ruin. All who are in Christ uh, will go to eternal blessedness. That's the future, ladies and gentlemen. Two types of people. Those who follow falsehood, who embrace it, who give their hearts to it. But they will come to eternal ruin. And then those who know the Savior, who believe in him. And in their believing in him, they follow him wherever he goes. Their outcome is vindication and eternal blessings. Not very complicated. Two types of people. Two ends. Two end states. One catastrophic loss. One eternal joy and blessedness and glorification. May God use uh, the end time judgments to purify us all and to increase uh, within our hearts a loyalty and an affection that grows day after day, that advances as a reminder to us of our every hope in the one true and only God and his Savior, Jesus Christ.